Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I'd like to welcome everyone in the audience today and thank you for taking time to be with us as we help public, private, and nonprofit organizations tackle important broadband issues, getting the technology everywhere it needs to be. Um, using broadband to advance telemedicine and improve healthcare delivery is promoted as one of the major benefits of this technology. And of particular interest is using broadband um, in this way to improve the quality of health care delivered in minority communities. As research shows, individuals in these communities are affected in higher numbers by chronic health issues, poor health care delivery, and so forth. And so as we work toward broadband adoption, uh, the use of the, the technology specifically in this area is seen as one of the ways to give people a reason for being uh, online. The Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies in April of this year released a report titled Minorities, Mobile Broadband, and the Management of Chronic Diseases. Today, we have one of the authors of that report, Joseph Miller, uh, who's an acting director and senior policy counsel for the, uh, the Joint Center. And he's going to give us some of the, the key findings of this report and some recommendations for maximizing broadband and healthcare delivery. Joseph, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Craig. Sure. So let's go into a little bit, just a brief overview of what the Joint Center does, for those who may not be familiar with it. Well, you know, the Joint Center uh, is a 40-year-old think tank. We, we like to think of ourselves these days as a do tank, but we were founded in 1970 <laughs> on the on the heels of the Voting Rights Act as a place for newly elected African-American officials to convene, exchange, exchange information, at the time, there was no think tank doing research uh, on issues of concern to African Americans and other communities of color. So the Joint Center was created to kind of fill that void. And so 40 le years later, we have uh, several institutes. Uh, we have a um, health policy institute, which does a lot of work around place matters and the effect of place on uh, health care outcomes, and we actually partnered with them on, on this report. Um, and when I say we, I'm referring to my institute, which is the Media and Technology Institute, and we focus on the issue of broadband adoption, broadband access, uh, media uh, portrayals of people in the media, media ownership, um, and those kinds of issues. And we also have a climate change issue um, institute that focuses on the role of the environment uh, in communities of color, the, the effect of environmental policy on communities of color. Okay. So you guys have been in the information gathering business and analysis and stuff for a number of years, so clearly this is not a new venture. <laughs> you guys have been at this for a while, which is good, which is good. Um, now, what are a couple of the key findings of this report that you released in April? Well, you know, first we, you know, we started with the the disparities. So we saw that African Americans, you know, the number one cause of death is heart disease. You know, kid, kidney disease is a leading killer. Uh, lower respiratory disease. So we had all of these chronic illnesses, and then we started thinking about, well, what can, how can mobile play a role in addressing some of these disparities? You know, we've also seen disparities in quality of care. I mean, on, on, you know, you know, the quality, the quality measures. Say you have a list of ten quality measures. There are many more, but you know, seven out of ten 
um, African Americans and Hispanics fare far worse um, than other communities. So how can mobile be used to improve the quality of care? And so we looked at apps, we looked at uh, devices, and we looked at how policies can be tailored generally to improve some of those, improve the use of uh, technology in improving health outcomes in communities of color. Mm-hmm. And um, so you identified, were these the areas of the largest uh Disparities, disparities, or how did you come up with this this starting group? Well, we cross-referenced with Centers for Disease Control uh, Research, um, the um, Department of Health and Human Services, and that was the research we used for determining where uh, the disparities were in terms of of these diseases. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, then, okay. and then we pulled in other research for the, then we pulled in other research for for the mobile uh, piece and, you know, research that's been done over the years by us and by Pew showing that minorities, um, especially African Americans, use mobile uh, devices as their primary way of going online. And so we saw an opportunity there. Okay. And I think that's been documented actually in a number of places how uh, – well, actually, you know, you've, you've done the research. I mean, what is the level – of by which uh, African-Americans, Hispanics, use mobile technology, I think, ahead of the rest of the, the various categories within the U.S., right? Well, there are, you know, there were several, um, there were several, several findings um, from various organizations. Um, it's something like over half of people of color, 54% of African-Americans and 53% of English-speaking, English-speaking Hispanics, you access the internet just using a handheld device, and that's from Pew. Eighteen percent of African Americans and sixteen percent of English-speaking Hispanics gain access to the internet only through wireless mobile, compared to just ten percent of white Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, African Americans and Latinos really sort of lead the way when it comes to mobile access using handheld devices. Wow, that's very interesting. So, if, basically, then if you're going to address an issue that is specific to those groups, and and the internet or access to the internet is how you're going to address that, then mobile, in in many respects, was the default technology to to, to go to. Right. In many ways, it is, and in many ways, it's you know kind of the only the only way uh, for some folks to go online. Okay. Now, are there limits in the fact that when you go online with a mobile device, you aren't getting the full-on experience. If you're, and to put it maybe into context, when I was writing about mobile applications uh, in my sort of prior life to government-related topics, um, guys would talk about how when you design the user interface for an application, uh, a desktop application, you start with that, and then you basically reduce, you know, maybe 90% of the functionality in order to get the interface to work in a, in a mobile device, which basically then meant how the end user uses it, uses that application, you know, on that device is very different than how a desktop user you would use the same application. Does that factor in, and does that become a, a, a source of concern? Well, you know, we always want to make sure that people have the skills to use these devices. Um, so di- digital literacy is a key factor. 
Um, when we talk about the internet, we all there's we've kind of beaten the topic of access and adoption to death. You know, in terms of trying to figure out whether people have access to technology. It doesn't mean it's not an important issue anymore. It just means that we've okay, we're aware of that. So now where the conversation has gone is what people are actually doing once they go online. And so we want to make sure that people are not only using the Internet to consume content, but also using it to improve the quality of their lives. And so it's part of giving them the digital literacy skills, but also part of involving them in that conversation around personal branding, around social media, social media marketing. Um, including them in the conversation about application and content development. Because once more people see that it's not just about being someone who's in the elite, that these tools are available to everyone, then there's no telling, you know, the sky's the limit in terms of what they'll start doing with these technologies, including using them to improve their 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 lives. And if they learn to develop apps, they can tailor them specifically to their own needs. So digital literacy is a key component, but messaging is also very critical. Mm -hmm. Do you find that um, there is a, uh, I don't know, a challenge in making the technology effective because of what might be prevailing, uh, I don't know, erroneous assumptions about how uh, minority groups use uh, technology, and then again, just kind of put it in a little bit of context. If I read, you know, a dozen articles about any kind of program that's trying to get uh, technology into uh, minority communities, low-income communities, you have the slew of comments there. You know, well, why why are we, you know, spending uh, tax dollars to give poor people technology when they're not interested or they don't use it or they don't know how to use it. I mean, things I find besides patently offensive but also not true, but I wonder does if, if that kind of mindset is out there, does that hinder uh, the ability of organizations to effectively use the technology and to create programs and policies to address um, health care concerns? Uh, in, in these in these communities, absolutely. I mean, it's a tremendous hindrance to being persuasive about the role of technology in improving outcomes. A lot of people just don't see the connection, and you know, when you when you say that people of color aren't interested, I mean, I just think that that's a an incredibly pessimistic approach. It's incredibly pessimistic to say that someone doesn't have the skills or doesn't have the background or doesn't have the interest now, and so they never will. And so what, end, what ends up happening, this has kind of the, been, been the trajectory in all policy, that once people hit a certain age that you know we can pretty much write them off and they're kind of set, set for life. But I don't think that, I, I don't think that that's the, the mindset that's appropriate when we're talking about innovation, when we're talking about digital literacy, I just think it's a big part of what's what's holding the, the country back. But a lot of people want to hold the country back. So, I mean, I, you know, there's nothing really that we can do about people who want, you know, this to be, you know, 15th century, you know, a, fifth, <laughs> a 15th century country. So, um, but to the extent that we can convince people who take that position who are a little more 
open-minded? I think that we should. And, you know, it's it really comes down to an awareness campaign. We had awareness campaigns to get people to quit smoking. We've had awareness campaigns that have been very effective to get people to eat more healthfully. And we can do the same thing with technology. It's just a question of, you know, getting people to think a little less conventionally. Mm-hmm. So you you basically have to meet this, and I'm guessing, or I'm gathering then with a certain level of creativity to to get around the uh the barriers that are that are set up well creativity and also optimism and not selling people short and not saying that someone who is 28 years old or or even 35 or even 50 years old that they you know they have a certain set of experiences that preclude them from being innovative or from using these technologies or from becoming digitally literate. Those are the kinds of uh, mindsets that we have to avoid if we're going to be serious about using the power of technology to tap into to communities outside of a few select hubs around the country. Mm, okay. And and how effective has this been? I mean, I know it's, I, I gather it's been a challenge, but you know, are we are there are there strides being made? Are things better, you know, in that regard today than they were say a year ago? As far as you know, people and their wrong-headed assumptions. I haven't seen any research on that, but certainly there are a couple of trends to take note of. African Americans are very avid users of Twitter. African uh, minorities have been very successful in using uh, video. Some of the, the, the there was a story in the Washington Post several weeks ago saying that uh, people of color are that most of the top videos on YouTube were done by people of color. So, and then there was a report that came out by Pew today talking about how most of the, that the news uh sites on YouTube have been very successful. So, if we can look at the role of news and the role of this is off the topic of mobile health, but if we can look at the the role of of news and think about making you know YouTube can become that platform where people of color have uh accurate can portray themselves accurately can can develop polished newscasts that people actually watch it's just a question of of making it part of their schema and we're headed in that direction but i think that that right now it's it's mostly in you know an entertainment um type which isn't a bad thing i mean if 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 audiences want entertainment that that's then that's what you should give them um but i'm not so i'm not so sure that there isn't um with some of the videos that have gone viral done by people of color i'm not so sure that the reason they were forwarded around or that they were so successful is because they may have not reflected a positive mm-hmm. portrayal but i i mean i don't know i don't know about that I haven't okay. looked at each successful chocolate rains of great videos, and that wasn't offensive. I don't know if you remember that one, the guy singing chocolate rain. Do you remember that? I no? don't remember that one. Sorry, no, that was a good one. <laughs> okay, um, so let's uh, coming back to the to the broadband and health uh, healthcare issue. So if I look at, oh, there's so many ways, so many ways to go with this. Let, let's start with, um, oh. 
using applications for just base level informing people about healthy attitudes, healthy strategies, healthy living styles. Um, what kinds of programs can be put in place to address that? Well, I was thinking about this earlier. Um, when we're talking about, let's talk about communities of color. Um, a lot of the time, communities of color, I, you know, I have been, you know, sort of very sensitive to injustice. Some of these um, applications that record police misconduct have been very successful among African Americans. So maybe there's a way to just, and this is just one example, I was talking about the quality measurements before, um, and a qu one quality measurement being, you know, doctors checking their patients who are over 40, checking their feet for, you know, if, they're, if they've been diagnosed with diabetes, checking their, their feet as part of their examination. That was a quality metric. Um, mm -hmm. giving, give, making sure infants between the ages of 19 and, and 35 months get all of their uh, type B flu vaccinations. If a, if a, a patient goes into the office and these tests aren't done, then maybe the Department of Health can have an application where people can find, okay, you know, diabetes examination. You know, here's a checklist of all of the all of the tests that should have been done. And if these tests weren't done, then they can just use their app to report that immediately to the Department of Health. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's all sorts of creative ways, and I think that starting with these these quality measurements are a good way to use this technology to affect social justice, similar to the law enforcement context, to enforce social justice and equity in the way minority patients are treated. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's one uh, part of it. Is, is that is, so? Is that sort of part of the problem is that people will go into uh, doctors for checkups or exams or whatever, and they won't they'll get shortchanged in essence of what they what kind of treatment or what kind of preventative care they should be getting? That's right. Um, there was a uh, there was a Department of Health um, report that revealed that black patients received worse care than white patients in 74% of quality measures. And then when they compared Hispanics to non-Hispanic whites, Hispanics received worse care in, on 67% of these quality measures. So, you know, let's say you're holding a clipboard and you have like 10 quality measures listed on it, whether it's the, um, the you know, checking the checking for sores or giving the flu vaccinations, you know, on seven out of those 10 measures, and there's many more, but on seven out of those 10, doctors are treating blacks and Hispanics worse than they treat white patients. They fell below standard in, in, in almost, you know, over seven out of 10 of those quality measures, which is pretty significant. Right. And that's if you're really... If you're going down ten quality measures and each of them has a has a scale, uh, you know, you know, three being good, then most of them were below three. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, the quality measures were not up to par. So, in this particular um, line, we can see a significant impact on the quality of healthcare by, in essence, using a very simple app that uh, reports whether or not you're getting good service or not. I mean, it's, it's like a foundation kind of application. 
well, this is something that we that should be created. You know, it would be great to have an application where people, when they go and they're sitting in the room waiting for, or they're after their their appointment, they can go through the checklist and see what needs to be done, or even before the services are administered, look at the checklist and see the tests, see what the quality measures are, to ensure that they to ensure right then and there that they're getting those services. And if they don't get them, then to to um, to report to report it. Because they may find out before the fact or after the fact. So I'm just giving that as an example of a tremendous opportunity that's created by mobile technology. It's you know, just creating an, an app that's you know, has categories for each chronic disease, age ranges and the tests that should be given based on the on the on the type of disease or the or the patient's different circumstances that allows them to see what kinds of services they should be getting and determine either before or after treatment whether they received the, whether you know the the how they how that their doctors did on those quality measurements mhm let's um I'm going to regress a little bit here or go back to uh something I meant to bring up earlier which is the um when you do applications for desktop users, they can be more inclusive because you've got bigger screens, bigger memory. You can do, uh, you can run uh, more robust applications. I mean, unless you're like working on a Wi-Fi network or some wireless network that has really good speed, you, there's a discrepancy. Um, where do we sort of address the wireline? uh access or or do we assume do we address do we develop for uh mobile only or do we start with addressing for wireline and then migrate these applications over to a mobile environment and one of the reasons I bring this, this question up there are several cities Kansas City is one uh Chattanooga is another where they either they have a gigabit network in place or they're getting one to, that's coming in they're bringing in teams of people to brainstorm for ideas brainstorm for applications and in essence creating um uh test beds for gigabit applications or what might be more uh, dis- appropriately described as high speed applications and the reason that you have a gigabit network is so that you can run, you know, you know, hundred or thousands of people using all those high bandwidth applications at once. But where does the role then of, of mobile fit in when you've got these test beds that are, that are developing applications uh with a wireline focus? Well they whatever they're developing should include a wireline component. I don't know who in their right mind would would develop a a wireline specific app that doesn't have mobile functionality. Okay. Unless there's unless there's some kind of a a budget constraint. So, um so we shouldn't limit ourselves to mobile. Mobile is not a uh panacea for solving the access and adoption problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly a lot more innovation can take place on wireline uh, platforms and wireline networks um, in terms of the, the user because of the bandwidth and uh, that's required to develop content and applications. The social aspect, there is some substitution there in terms of 
being able to share Instagram photos or use Facebook or use Twitter. I mean, the mobile can, you know, if you're just talking about engagement, mobile is to some extent a substitute. But when you're talking about developing applications and developing content, even if you're developing a mobile application, you still have to have access to that, to wireline. So I don't know if you're you're asking about about the, the are you are you asking about the role of mobile as a substitute or are you just asking no in terms of if you if you follow if people are following the publicity about you know the like gigabit challenge and gigabit city in 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 Chattanooga and you've got uh oh was it gig.u where they're they're setting up these test beds of um application development. Well, in many cases if you read the stories, they talk about, you know, the big apps, you know, the the you know, the, the 100 meg apps, apps for a gigabit network, you know, they're they're very focused on wireline, right? So what you're describing is, you know, we have a community or we have, you know, several communities where mobile is their device of choice. So I guess, you know, what I was trying to get at is, you know, oh, I see what you see um, you know, having dual vision as opposed to monovision on this thing. Yeah, I I think it's incredibly important to make sure that some of the, whether Gigabit does it or another entity is created to create these mobile apps, um, you know, it absolutely needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I, I think that the issue with wireline is that once you have wireline, you can then have mobile on top of that. So it's mm-hmm. almost like a uh, a prerequisite before you get into mobile. So that may be at 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 work there. And I, but I don't, I'm not an, I don't know much. About, I'm not an expert on 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 Giga dot you. you. Yes. Um, but you know I I would think that if there's a program that's not incorporating mobile and not that's not fully inclusive. Then I think that's a real concern, right? Okay, and, and I mean that that would be a lot of my assumption as well. Is that um, you know we seem to have uh, a a case where you know people are very focused on wireline, and you have people who are very focused on wireless, and sometimes these discussions become almost like a holy war. In fact, I just wrote about that over the weekend on uh, Gig Data, uh, Gigom. You know, it's like, you know, mine is the only way to go. You know, wireless is it. You know, bada, bada, bada. And I think that almost in all cases, you should be looking at a um, uh, at both because of what you've described that's happening in uh, low-income communities. You know, we're in, we're in any community. I think even if you look at the young younger uh, audiences, you know, the millennials or whatever we're calling the under-20 group, you know, these are people not wedded to landlines. You know, they're wedded to the the mobile device. Um, at the same time, you know, you go into a doctor's office, you know, they generally are working with laptops, so they may have a wireless connection at some point, so they can kind of walk around the, the facility. But, you know, a lot of their stuff is, um, you know, still using the laptop as the, I don't know the the anchor device that's for for these applications. And I just think we have to be careful that we don't um, get ourselves into a box here. So I want to look at a couple of the categories of applications that that you guys talked about in the report. And you know, from your perspective, 
you know what's going to be the potential um categ- the potential um impact of these categories and so we'll start with with mobile imaging um uh, you know in part because i had never never really thought about mobile as being a way to facilitate uh, imaging, because when people talk about imaging, especially in a medical, you know, thing, they're talking about moving MRIs and and X-rays and all of that, which require massive pipes in order to get that back and forth. Um, but but you guys single this out as a as a category worthy of of some time. So how how do you see that fleshing out? So l- let me start by saying there are three types of applications that we discussed. One is the and the mobile MIM, which is the, the remote diagnostic imaging tool that allows doctors and image scans more efficiently than other meth- other methods. Then there's the pill phone, which helps patients manage their medication. And then there's the uh, quick MT, which helps patients access their medical information. And our our position in the paper is that these technologies, these applications are available, but that they should be more widespread. They're not ubiquitous enough. Um, so to the extent that we can make these things available in communities of color and encourage doctors to use them, that that's that was the goal. That's the goal. So it's a. Um, hmm. So when you say when you say how how do I see them playing out? I mean we have. I just I we're we're advocating for more of these kinds of applications. Okay. In des- in describing mobile health platforms, these are the kinds of applications that are available, and they should be used much more than they are. Gotcha. Now, when you looked at those three categories. Was there any? I don't know. Did, did anyone have a have an idea of how these paths are going to be developed? I mean, should we expect applications in the year, less than a year? Um, are people going to have to stand up and you know uh, lobby for these kinds of applications? In other words, how do we get from here to there? I guess is a question I would have. Well, we made uh, we made several policy um, recommendations. Okay. So, I mean, we. I mean, we had the policy recommendations. We have the um, digital literacy and ensuring that people know how to use um, technology. Um, so, I mean, there are a lot of things that. I mean, there. You know, research and development investments can be made to encourage the development of some of these things. Mm, okay. So, so this is the the, the policy side of things. Um, Managing medical now, yeah, I think when I you know when I look over these uh, three, you know, probably the easier one from a you know development standpoint. Cause I'm still I'm still a little bit hung up on the on the imaging and and how much that'll be affected by whether you've got a uh, cell phone connection or you right. have a uh, Wi-Fi connection. You know, because the other thing the the imaging comes into play. You know, if I'm the average user and I'm using a mobile imaging app if i'm working with a service provider who has put data caps on you know my my contract you know i have to worry that oh if i go to the doctor's office and i actually use this thing that i'll blow out my data cap in like one day you know because of that 
I look at the other two, you know, the the managing um, medication usage, uh, getting access to important medical information as easier to execute. In other words, if I'm, you know, again, look, coming back to these, you know, these test beds, you know, if I'm developing an application, you know, and I brought a bunch of, like in, in Chattanooga where they have, oh, I don't know, about uh, six or seven, maybe eight different teams of people working on applications, I can say, well, you know, I can I can envision doing the the um, you know the medication usage app in a matter of months, which is like, well, you know, short period of time, and also it doesn't require a lot of bandwidth to do. I mean, one of the we we talk about 4G, but you know, 4G still has its its, its speed limits. Whereas, you know, if I've got an application where all I'm doing is uh, I need to check up on you know my doctor prescribed X. And I need to know what that means. Or the doctor says, well, you need to follow a regimen to, um, you know, address this fact that you have diabetes. And, you know, I have no clue as to what that regimen might be. Well, the ability to, you know, find that information but also to access it without it blowing out your data cap or, you know, getting your machine that's got, you know, it, the connection crawls down to zero, um, those two sort of categories of applications seem to be, you know, easier to envision and easier to work toward. I may be wrong, but that's – I don't know if you guys looked at that side of it or not, but – Yeah, no, ahead. I mean, that's a, that's an interesting point. We didn't we didn't raise the issue of uh, data caps in our uh, paper, but certainly, um, certainly ensuring that, you know, once people have access, that's half the issue, but mm-hmm. also making sure that – that spectrum is managed effectively, um, uh, so that so that with, so that the consumers aren't overcharged for using, you know, these applications that are are necessary necessary for to to for ease of life, for convenience, for their overall well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we don't want to disincentivize that, whether it's on whether it's the the communications companies or the um or the regulators the taxing authorities that you know that um that impact the the pricing of broadband and that was one of our policy recommendations we we you know we pointed to the um digital goods and services tax fairness act um which is an act that's currently pending that would um that would create that would prevent multiple taxation when consumers purchase apps and other types of digital goods and services online you know that combined with the wireless the, the taxes for wireless service in general you know exact an enormous cost on on consumers i mean we're talking about you know 17% in some states which is more than twice the uh more than twice the sales tax rate in New York. So there are a number of 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 issues that affect the you know whether we're t- whether we're talking about spectrum management or taxing or what consumers or what excuse me what uh, providers charge there are a number of things at work here that that affect the 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 pricing um that can that that can act as a as a barrier mm-hmm. to adoption generally and then specifically to to you know once they have even have service to actually you know their level of uh use so did you 
did you by any chance see there was an article, and I, for the life of me, can't remember right now, because it kind of caught me by surprise. It was um, you know, last week, I guess. There was an article that was basically saying that our assumptions that uh, one of the bigger barriers for um, low-income people to use broadband was they didn't see the need for it, whereas the survey was saying, well, it's, it's really that is less of a concern. People understand more and more about the need. What's really the, the top consideration is the cost, and generally it's not the cost of access; it's the cost of the device and and the you know the, the training time and so forth and so on. Um, do you think that that's uh, that we're at a point where people uh, more than not understand you know understand the value of broadband that we don't really have to fight that battle again or continuing? It well, it depends. I think that the consumption issue, the act of using your device for text messaging or ringtones or keeping in touch with friends and family or games or whatever it is, the consumption uh, story has been told. And I think that most people know about why they need access to the Internet so that they can consume information or consume content. What I don't see, I, I don't see enough people knowing how to use the Internet effectively to improve their socioeconomic circumstances. I see the conversation happening in, in um, I mean, I, you know, people of color are part of the tech community. They're part of the social media community. They're part of the, the community on Twitter who are interested in branding themselves and, and engagement um, but I would I would say that that there are too many people of color. The people of color who miss that message is disproportionate um, to the to the people who are not of who uh, in other demographics who who are kind of part of that culture of innovation. Okay, so it's it's more of the how. It comes back to the how do I use this information, not the fact that I need to get to the information. Um, the question is the question. Well, no, no, is, no, I'm just trying to kind of trying to clarify that, you know, what we what we have is sort of is an issue of how do I use this information? In other words, I understand that I need to be on the internet because I can't get a job without being on there. I understand that you know I need to be there because everyone else I need to connect with is on is on the internet. But I may not understand fully how I use that access to develop relationships, how I use it to um, improve my economic status, how I use it to start a home-based business. In other That's words, right. There's, there's, right. So there's understanding that I need to be there, but, Lordy, once I get there, what do I do <laughs> is, is, a big, is a big factor. Right. Um, or that I know how to do – I know how to, to – how to consume um, – or just that that or just there there may you know they may get online and say well I know everything I need to know about it and just not take it in anything not even be not even feeling bewildered by it just feeling like they're they're you know they know all they need to know mhm now who's going who should shoulder the responsibility for closing that particular gap i guess we we'll call it a knowledge gap i think all of us do um, I think the the policy community does. I think 
that universities do. Um, I think that 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 educators have a tremendous role to play here. Mm-hmm. Um, education is a is a major component of this, but I mean our education system is so broken and so difficult to improve. Um, there are some real key challenges there: media consumption um, and the effect of what children see on television, how it shapes their role in society, um, and how they think of themselves as contributors rather than consumers has an impact. So the list goes on and on. Mm -hmm. It is not an easy uh, task. Sometimes, you know, I, I, like, for example, I was, I was talking to a, Vice principal at a school in in Oakland, you know, typical inner inner city school, but they work hard at trying to get their kids through, you know, through the process on the college or on some vocation, you know, that they you know they, they want to make a difference. They want to make sure that 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 education process makes a difference, but it just seems like the deck is so stacked in terms of you know the quality of education system and the the just the resources, you know, the resources a teacher needs. And then you look at all these other outside things, you know, like what, what are they seeing in the media? What are they getting, you know, what are they hearing at home? You know, what are they hearing if they end up, you know, in another neighborhood or another environment that's not their home environment? And, you know, it kind of gets to a question of how do we how do we address that, which is actually probably a good segue into some of the policy recommendations, because ultimately you guys are all about policy what are some of the the key policies that you think or that that everyone feels need to be uh pursued in order to um make this all work in the end make to make the mobile well, health the, work the, the 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 you know you you've got mobile as as a as a vehicle you say okay we can use mobile technology to improve uh, healthcare delivery and healthy attitudes by uh, minorities. How you know? So now, what policies do you see in place, or that they need to be in place, in order to achieve that? Well, the first thing is to make sure that primary care physicians are available in these areas. There's simply not enough PCPs in unserved and underserved areas. The second thing is making sure that uh, communities of color, that the FCC should pursue their uh, universal service initiatives to make sure that broadband is available, um, wireless and wireline. A lot of those policies focus on wireline. There's a mobility fund that the um, Communications Commission has acted on or will act on that will facilitate investment in uh, mobile broadband and subsidies for mobile broadband. Uh, That should uh, be pursued. Um, And then, you know, limit the regulatory barriers that limit the use of nontraditional medical treatment. You know, this goes back to what I was saying before. There's a lot of conventional thinking out there, and a lot of that is legislated. So, you know, reforming some of those regulations to allow for uh, new ideas to come in, I think, is essential. Let's, let's uh, if we can if we can hit on that a little bit, um, because actually, you know, I did read that section, and you know, you gave a couple of examples of 
where there needs to be change in this regulatory area. So, you know, for the benefit of our audience, can you describe a couple of those in a little bit more detail? Sure. Um, we thought that Congress should strike a more appropriate balance between the need to protect personal health data and the need to ensure that innovation continues to flourish. So one of the issues was privacy. And um, because of privacy, a lot of that a lot of that patient data it's difficult to release a lot of that patient data now we don't want pa patient data shouldn't get into the wrong hands but at the same time it has to be disaggregated somehow to allow innovation to flourish to allow um entrepreneurs and and developers to develop these applications because how can they develop the applications without the data Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it can be done with you know non-identifying data or how it can be done, but what we're recommending is that 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 to the extent that it's that it's feasible, that some of these some of the privacy regulations in in HIPAA, which is the Health Insurance Portability and Account Accountability Act, some of those privacy uh, regulations should be relaxed. Mm -hmm. That uh, I agree uh, makes a, makes a lot of sense. I mean, we when I talk to people about medical applications, I mean, even before you know I got into the broadband thing, when it was just a discussion of mobile applications and all the things you could do with mobile applications, and uh, I would talk to people say at uh, medical emergency response personnel. Right, and they would talk about the issues and challenges they would have in creating a useful. Um, application that would allow them to say treat a person at the scene of an accident and transmit information while they're on route to the hospital. Right. In other words, saving the patient's life or increasing the odds of saving the patient's life by being able to transmit data back and forth faster. But you have to go through a whole lot of hoops so that your application complies with all these various regulations, and you know it is quite a, a pain. And right. I gather that you know it hasn't changed much over the last few years. Right, exactly. Um, I mean, obviously, we don't want people running around. I certainly don't want people running around with my health information. Um, but, you know, there has to be some way, some kind of mechanism to make it so that innovation can happen. I mean, look at I mean, what are we doing in other contexts? I mean, legislators need to look at what we're doing in other contexts to deal with privacy, but still you know, allow innovators to use sensitive data in a way that doesn't harm the consumers. Mm -hmm. are, are we still in a bad spot as far as regulations that relate to preventative care? In other words, um, uh, there, there. I know what was it in the in the uh, latest um, uh, legislation that was passed, uh, the Obama, uh, the the Obamacare. Uh, legislation, you know, one of the tenets of that, I believe, was, you know, to make it easier to get funding for preventative health care. Would you consider mobile technology, if it's geared toward people getting, you know, data on healthy lifestyles, is that something that merits a, you know, I should consider my mobile device, you know, getting some sort of, I don't know, write-off, tax break, something that says, you know, we're going to change 
the interaction and allow these mobile devices to be part of that solution that somehow gets supported in some way. It may not necessarily be a financial support, but you know, some sort of support for that technology as a preventative healthcare tool. Sure, and that speaks to the incentives that are created in the Recovery Act for providers who use electronic health records in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I certainly think that that you know, I mean I've I don't certainly think I do think that mobile health applications most of the the mobile health applications the ones that we discussed very briefly at forty thousand feet in our paper mm-hmm. that those would certainly be meaningful uses of of technology whether we're talking about um, the, um, the the mobile the mobile imaging the pill phone or quick MT or any other kinds of applications, certainly that those would be meaningful uses that would entitle providers who use them to some kind of an incentive. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it would be worthwhile policy for uh, municipalities to be able to create or help create networks in in communities? For example, in um, at one point in San Francisco, there were a number of housing projects that were all uh, linked together, um, and people within those were linked by a, a Wi-Fi network that was brought in. Now, it was done as sort of something of a pseudo-pilot project, right? So the company involved paid for some of the equipment or underwrote or sold their stuff for less money or whatever, and then the city, through the housing authority, you know, helped shepherd the program together and, and to make sure that, it was, that the technology got put into place. But the upside of all of that was um, it allowed, um, via Wi-Fi, faster connections, no worry about data caps. Um, they had, through the various community centers within these uh, pro- uh, these, these uh, communities, um, you know, people who were teaching folks how to use the technology. But the bottom line was the city was driving the communities to, in essence, create their own, to have their own infrastructure as part of their broadband solution. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, the key constraint there is how it would be paid for. And I, you said that there was a company that supported it. I'm sure that there can be isolated incidents where that would happen. Um, the only question is how it would be paid for if we try to do it on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. So um, certainly not against the idea, um, but you know, it tends to be, I don't know, most of the examples of community broadband that I've seen have been in, in wealthier areas, so I'm not sure how that would work in a in a housing uh, in a housing project without some type of outside investment, and I'm not sure how those how those um, how those incentives would line up. Right. No, I mean there there are definitely some challenges to that, and, and in fact, in a in a paper that I did recently, um, I had an interview with uh, the East Bay. Uh, Community Foundation, which is a foundation, uh, it's funded by philanthropic interests that pursue projects and programs that have an economic impact on on the community. And so here in Oakland, they're looking at ways in which this this community foundation can help underwrite or bring people together who are willing to underwrite um, broadband projects 
that can be seen to provide or, or, or produce an economic development outcome that is favorable to the community. And so it's kind of like two questions in one because there's that as an option, but is it possible that we could look at um, better health care delivery, preventative health care programs that are delivered via mobile technology as being an economic development project? Well, certainly anything that brings uh, revenue into the municipality would be um, an economic development project. So um, I used to work for an incubator in uh, – it, it, it was for through Pace University. There was one location in Yonkers, New York, and another location in Yonkers, New York. Um, so, I mean, if there's a way to have business incubation, and that's one example, business incubation, an incubator that's focused on health applications and health IT that's near a hospital, for example, you know, that may be something worth considering. Mm-hmm. Um, any kinds of, I think the municipalities that would benefit most from that type of thing are those that are located with in areas with resources like hospitals, um, there's plenty of pharmacies mm-hmm. um, with with medical with medical providers um, nearby, so that the so that so that those so that partnerships can be can be developed. But right. maybe there's maybe there's a way to do it in more a more re- remote areas by tying into larger cities within the state. Mm-hmm. But so I think what, that some some place like Oakland would have that those kinds of resources available. Right. I think what um, what's what's spurring those kinds of conversations are maybe stories that are coming out of places such as uh, Danville, Virginia, which is a small rural town. But um, they're the, the folks driving their broadband project from the Economic Development Office said that, well, if we can keep our folks healthier, then they're going to work more, they're going to miss less days of work. If we can find a way to have people access uh, medical services of some sort, you know, obviously not things like surgery, but, you know, medical information, checkups, the ability maybe to video, have some sort of video conference where someone can look at the, you know, this rash to figure out is it something minor or is it something serious without having to take off work. And when you're talking rural areas, you know, there may be a large commute that's involved. And it's not even just rural areas. I just think the discussion tends to be in these areas more than urban areas. But I think in urban areas you have a similar kind of issue if you keep people healthier, they work more, they make more money, you know, there's less strain on the services that, that you know, that provide health care. Um, you know, someone doesn't have to take a day off to take three buses to get to a doctor's, you know, for an appointment. If you can get a lot of this stuff, you know, set up so that you can do it online. So in those ways, I think it's is how people are starting to look at it as, you know, as, as it being an economic development uh, issue. And so I'm just wondering, you know, from the research that you guys have done, you know, do you see a kind of this dovetailing between, you know, you're looking at healthier communities, which is a plus, but can we also look at, you know, healthier communities as an economic development equation of some Sure, kind? absolutely. I mean, it depends on on which area you're you're talking about because each area will have their own, you know, SWOT analysis 
but um it's certainly something i mean healthcare is a is a massive industry so any way that we can figure out how to leverage healthcare for economic development would be i think would be a possibility mhm so we've got about uh 3 minutes or so um as as a wrap up if you were going to give the community i don't know a 1 2 3 to say okay look if you want to take advantage of the potential that mobile technology broadband technology has to improve the overall health of your community what would those i don't know first two or three steps be well i would i would say that your idea of of creating programs that are geared towards economic development that those types of things should be pursued whether they're business incubation programs or other kinds of programs that would certainly bring an influx of cash into the communities um i think digital literacy is a major component and by digital literacy i don't just mean how to turn a computer on and off um it's not even limited to just knowing how to code but it it's also having uh folks using technology in a way that's engaging um and that's going to be going to produce um rather than just just consuming information in a way that's relevant and in a, in a way that has a, a socioeconomic impact mm-hmm. uh that goes that kind of transcends the entertainment value of these media although the entertainment value to the extent that people of color can develop a a an entertainment platform that's pl- popular that they can make money on i mean i'm all for that um but you know and in addition to that we want to make sure that we look at how uh technology can be used to improve their socioeconomic circumstances and then i i you know the third thing i would say is just to encourage policymakers to think holistically about all of these issues we made a lot of policy recommendations in our paper we focused on fcc policy we focused on the uh, recovery act we you know we talked about hipaa so you know the 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 conversation about mobile health and mobile broadband is multifarious so you know it's important to look at all of the different components to make sure that we have appropriate uh, an appropriate policy framework. Mhm. Well, this has been uh this has been great information. In fact, we probably could go on for another half hour, but we've we've got to wrap it up here, but uh Joseph, thank you very very much for uh sharing both the, the details of both the report and also the recommendations and stuff that you guys have made in that policy realm. And I look forward to you know chatting again. And then, by the way, are you working on a, a, a broadband research of some sort? We only got a couple of seconds, but I figured I should squeeze it in. We have a couple of projects in the works. Okay, so we'll, we need to stay uh, we'll, tuned with your website. Okay, I will. And uh, thanks so much. Glad to do it, Craig. And anyone wants to follow me on Twitter, my handle is at Joe Miller JD. Great. And uh, to our audience, thank you very much for being here today. We've had a very good audience. Uh, I also want to thank our sponsor, Hiawatha Broadband Communications, uh, for their continued support. And we will be back uh, with another show later this week. And um, thank you, and and let's talk again. Take care. Thanks, Craig. Yep. Bye.